Hello and welcome to Pep Talk by Perpetual, a talent advisory firm based out of New York City and Paris. This podcast is all about raw conversations with real people. My name is Nigel Robinson. I am a partner at Perpetual and I am delighted to welcome today uh, Ed Pilkington, uh, who is the Chief Marketing and Innovation Officer at Diageo North America. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nigel. Great to be here. Ed, thank you for sharing your time with us here today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, in order to get us started, I've actually got a warm-up question for us here. It's a bit of fun and also an opportunity for everyone who's listening to get to know you a little bit better. So the question is this. So if you were marooned on a desert island, what would you take with you? And I'm going to take family um, off the table in case that would be one of your answers there. But if you were marooned on a desert island, what is it that you would take? Let's say three things that you would want to take with you in order to help sustain you um, in that uh, survival situation. Let's put it like that. Well, I would say this because I work in the drinks business. I, I would have to have something decent to drink. Um, so if, um, probably could have all three. Uh, but if I had to take one, it's difficult actually because you want something refreshing, uh, nice and lighty, you know. Um, but I'd probably take a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label. There we go. That's a gratuitous plug for Johnny Walker um, because it's the most sort of ubiquitous whiskey. So I could drink it um, with all the lovely fruit juices there. And I could also drink it neat uh, in the evening as I'm sipping it. So I'd take that. I would take some music. Take some music. Um, yeah, I'd take some sort of classic sort of indie type music, various, uh, various sort of indie bands which I'd listen to. So, uh, uh, so I'd have a. And then I'd. What would be the third thing I'd take? Um, I'm assuming I've got decent food there, but I love. I mean, I, I'm I'm a huge fruit eater, so I think I'd just make sure I've got the right ability, or the right knives, or the ability to hack down and eat lots of great fruit. Great, Ed. Thank you uh, for sharing there your your insights on desert island survival. I'm hoping that, of course, never happens. But if it does, you'll at least have your your priorities uh, listed, and you would be you know ready to to survive in that situation. So, Ed, to kick us off here today, we would love to for you to be able to share, actually, a bit about yourself, your background, your career, your life story, if you like, that got you to this moment where you are today, um, sharing this podcast moment with me. So, could you talk us through your, your life story, Ed? We'd love to hear that. Yeah, thanks, Nigel. So, um, as you can hear from the accent, I grew up in the, uh, grew up in the UK. Um, left school, actually spent a year in Spain, went to university in the UK, went to Birmingham University, had another year abroad, actually spent a year in Mexico. And then um, when I, um, I had a nice upbringing, which is all good, um, and then I wanted to work in business, basically. Um, and I like the idea. I traveled, clearly. I like the idea of selling things. I thought I was quite attracted. And I actually, at the heart of it, I, I'm fascinated in what makes people want to buy brands and what makes people want to buy things, so the psychology of it. Um, and I come from a family where my father's a lawyer, my mother's a physiotherapist, my sister's an accountant. So it, it wasn't like there were any sort of marketers uh, and actually the rest of the family engineers. Um, but I was just really interested in kind of the what was behind selling and what was behind essentially marketing. Um, so I got a job at Guinness. I joined their graduate trainee scheme. And basically, I sort of taught myself into it by saying that I wanted to sell their brands, which was at the time was Guinness and then things like Johnny Walker Black Label and Johnny Walker and Tanqueray Gin. 
around the world. So I wanted to kind of work in international sales. So um, that was what motivated me. And I've been doing that for the last 25 years, basically. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Ed. And I, I love this um, idea that you shared with us here, this concept of imagining something um, uh, in your life and then you know, applying resources, time, effort, energy into making it happen. And it sounds like for you, as actually my experience as well, this is a real uh, route to uh, happiness, personal fulfillment, and, you know, part of a really rewarding journey that you have clearly uh, been on in your life and your career. So, Ed, one, you know, recurring theme throughout your story you've shared with us uh, just now is you know, the amount of international travel, um, these periods, these moments, if you like, of change and transformation that you have endorsed in your life journey that have had an impact on your career, uh, presumably all positive, although not all transitions, of course, necessarily have uh, positive outcomes in the moment. But we'd love for you to share, please, what was perhaps the most important uh, transition, perhaps, or transformational moment in your career that really caused you to think um, and really made a difference in the trajectory of your your personal and your your business career. Yeah, um, thanks, Nigel. I've, I've had, candidly, I've had probably quite a few. Um, it feels like every three, four, or five years in my career, I probably hit a moment where I go, "What is next?" And I, I never had my point earlier. I just wanted to sort of progress in my career, work for organizations or an organization where I felt, you know, it had the right values that, you know, matched my values and all that, um, and where I could learn, grow, and, and candidly have fun um, as well. So that's kind of what I was, uh, that's what I was after. Um, I think I've hit a, a few big moments. Actually, I'm allowed to sort of give two or three rapid ones. I would say I did leave the company and come back. Um, so... I was very happy at the company, but I left and went to L'Oreal for a couple of years where I was extremely happy. Got amazing experience there for a couple of years. Um, and I found it amazing working for an organization where I learned a lot about uh, real pace, uh, product quality. Um, really, it was, uh, you know, the, yeah, the, 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 the speed that we worked at was, it, it was impressive. Um, and I learned a lot there, but I then came back into what, what is now Diageo. Uh, and I think those two decisions, one leaving was a big one and coming back was a big one. Uh, no regrets on either, um, both great organizations. And then I've had, frankly then had some big choices to make about where to work around the world. Um, and I think probably one of the, um, the biggest ones I had was, um, I was basically, I was, I was running Malibu for Diageo. We, we used to own Malibu. This is going back 20 years. Um, and I was the global head of Malibu. Um, and we sold the brand. We had to sell it because the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S., um, Basically, we were buying the secret business, which had Captain Morgan and me, felt that we needed to dispose of some of our brands, notably Malibu. So we went through that process, and uh, potentially I was going to leave the organization, and I, I, Diageo couldn't talk to me about any roles, etc. So I was getting lined up to probably leave, um, and uh, I went to see my boss the day after we sold the brand, and I was went literally shake his hand and say, that's it, I'm, I'm gone, thank you very much, it's been a good ride. Uh, and he sort of said, hang in there. Give me two weeks so I can now talk to you about careers uh, and uh, I'll let you know. So I had some stuff lined up and I was like, okay, fine. But, you know, I've got a few irons in the fire and one notable iron in the fire. So I don't want to muck anyone around, but uh, I'll come back in two weeks. So I sort of went off and had two weeks holiday. Um, and then he said, do you fancy going to Australia? 
Uh, and it was one of those moments where I thought, like, oh, wow, that's it. <laughs> there you go. Um, and some people might just say, well, of course you can go to Australia because um, it's it's amazing and who wouldn't want to take an opportunity to get to Australia and, you know, do a good job down there and probably get well paid to do it. Um, but that was a big life moment where, you know, candidly I was happy, personally was happy, things were good. Um, I did have other opportunities. And I think you just have to evaluate it. But I think the big learning was I, I flew down and flew back. And I think you just have to follow your gut and understand you can go through that period of, rationally what is right and then just also just what feels right and rationally it felt right because it was a marketing director job it was a head, of, head of marketing which i wanted to do so the job ticked all the boxes that i wanted to do but it was still going to the other side of the world and um but i remember just waking up one morning and i just thought i've just got to do this because it's too great an experience not to and i will look back and regret not doing this i just did not want to look back in five ten years time and go you know i could have done that or be sitting somewhere and saying I could have done this. I could. Have, I just had to have the experience, um, and that led me from there. Led me to then moving. Did three years in Australia, back to Miami where I'd lived before, where I spent five years in Latin America, which I absolutely love, uh, and that led me to another move to Amsterdam, and then back to the States. Now a little bit of time in Europe, in the middle. And so I think that was a, a huge moment where I basically almost had to decide that I was going to go back on the road and hit the road uh, and get back out and travel again. Um, and I've absolutely no regrets whatsoever. But I think it was a mix of logic. I could logically say this is a great job that they've offered me, but it was as much as anything else. I just couldn't pass on the the experience I knew I was going to have, which was amazing. Uh, wow, Ed. So there's some amazing um, adventures there. Um, and thank you for for sharing, again, adventures on that took you to the other side of the world. That's an amazing um, journey to have been on. I'd love to focus in, actually, for a moment here on the period that, um, where you made the transition from Diageo, you spent some time um, with another amazing company, L'Oreal, and then you know you came back. And I just love to understand a bit more about what it was like moving into and working inside um, another culture. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. I think it was great going into another industry. So you realise sort of one, it was about learning about another industry, which I found very interesting. Um, uh, and just yeah, I, learning about the a culture which was um, just different in its style. A fantastic, a fantastic organisation. Uh, as I said, work with real pace, uh, a level of detail into understanding their brands, uh, how the brands operate. Um, uh, culturally different, different. You know, going from a corporation which was based in the UK to a corporation which is based in in France. Um, so learning about some of the different cultural nuances. Obviously, I spent a lot of time in France anyway spoke a bit of the language so it was just um yeah it was a, an amazing experience and one i i enjoyed a lot i got a lot out of and i only left because i felt i had an opportunity to come back into a business which i liked a lot uh, and i felt that was the right thing to do and i was offered another role there but i left actually generally left l'oreal with a heavy heart because i learned a lot there and i joined the business a lot uh as i was only there two years but it was um i think um you know i got a lot out of it and i was very grateful for what i learned when i was there um uh but it, it was um yeah, it was. I've and I've I've only resigned from two companies. Once I say essentially, what was Diageo to go to L'Oreal and L'Oreal to come back to Diageo. So no no regrets at all. Um, but it was there were two big decisions in my life and two amazing organisations. Okay, that's interesting, Ed. Thank you for sharing your your insights there. Um, my next question is: I'd, I'd like to explore a bit more about the the Australian opportunity that you took and that transition in your life. Um, which sounded like a great opportunity, of course, but 
What were the implications on perhaps your your life, your family, your relationships in taking that move? Um, yes, yeah, so I was at, well. I was <laughs> I was in a relationship at the time, and that actually um, it came to a bit of an end. Actually, if you wanted to do so, that um, so that had a bit of a bit of, bit of an impact. Uh, and then my mum thought I would never return. Um, so you know, mum thought. You know, we knew people who'd gone out to Australia because many respects going to Australia is not not hard at all. Many people, have, it's a, a fairly well trodden path for many people. Um, but it is, you know, like all different countries, they're culturally different. You have to understand the nuances when you arrive somewhere. But um, I think my mother thought that I'd go down there, love it, which I did love it, and I I would stay there and never come back. Um, so I think she was worried that that would be, and I was very aware of that when I was making my decision, which was because I ended up basically going on my own. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, the fear from the family back in the UK was that would be it and I'd be down there forever, basically. Um, and, you know, for all the... But I think that my mentality was, it's it's a definition of what's... It's, it's only 24 hours, actually. It's a, it's a flight back. It's very doable. Um, the price of flights aren't that expensive, actually. Um, you can do it. you just got to put yourself in the right mindset. So I came home a few times. I did... Uh, in fact, I, I was... I ended up on a, a training, pro- a development program in the States. So one of my years there, I, I flew to Philadelphia four times, um, which was crazy. And I, every time I did it, I did a round of world trip. So I do Sydney, LA, Philadelphia, London, Bangkok, uh, Sydney, normally in the space of like about eight days. Um, and I'd drop in and see my mum and dad and my family. So I'd, I'd make every opportunity. I think you just got to grab every opportunity to see people and keep connected and make the most of it. And, the world's a big place, but a small place as well. Um, so, and we had, I think there was one issue where I had to suddenly rush back. Um, but, you know, we, I was back within 48 hours. So, again, it wasn't too hard, really. So, this, I think you just got to look at it like that. And, yes, that's a great point, Ed. Australia is not that far away from the rest of the world when you consider it um, is just, you know, a couple of plane rides, perhaps, to get you back to uh, North America or to Europe. So I'd love to, to, to double-click now on something slightly different, which is uh, the pandemic, which has clearly impacted all of our lives uh, globally over the past 12 months or so. Um, as you look back over the past year, Ed, what's your reflections on how um, Diageo perhaps has handled the pandemic, how it found opportunities in this crisis, and perhaps your own you know, leadership experience um, over the past 12 months? Whilst in some respects the world has, you know, stood still and we've all sort of stopped move, sort of moving as much. I mean, I was on a plane, even in this North American job, I was flying around the whole time or, you know, occasionally flying back to the UK for meetings or back to see the family, etc. Um, you know, suddenly in some respects to say the world slowed down, but in other respects it's just sped up. And I think, you know, many businesses, including a business like ours, which you could look at and go, traditional business people have been drinking for thousands of years you know lots of brands which have been around which people would recognize and sometimes i think are um people don't actually realize actually the the, actually the the pace of change that happens in an industry like uh, the drinks business actually which has changed hugely changes hugely actually get a lot of change over sort of a period often five or six years so we realized we had to pivot pretty quickly um we lost basically about 18 percent of our business was in the on-premise so bars restaurants hotels etc uh, so that business just went. Um, so the first thing there was really to make sure that we supported uh, those, uh, make sure we were supporting and helping all the people who worked in hospitality as much as we could. So we put a, we put money in, we gave donations, we 
had programs with our brands to try and support the hospitality in the industry. So that was the first thing to try and help. And we could look, we, we could only do our bit clearly, but we tried to do our bit. And we were, I think, pretty generous in what we did. So I think we feel, felt good about that and tried to, and we are still helping and we've got programs in place through our brands where we're trying to help. And then we had to realize that the model was different. Um, and so, um, and understand how consumers were and how can people were behaving. And the first month was just all about learning. So having your ear to the ground, learning what people were doing. People were massively in stock up. So what that meant, people were buying larger bottles. So you had to change the supply chain in terms of making sure you've got enough big bottles because people were stocking up. And then when people realized they were in it for the long term, back to loo roll, they didn't need to have as much as they did have. And actually they could get back to more regular ordering. So people went from buying big 1.75 litre bottles of spirits to regular sized bottles and it became a little bit more normal. And then you, you sort of realized, you know, what were the big trends? The, whatever, the, well, what, what was hot going into the pandemic got hotter. So, you know, as people were sitting at home, people realized they wanted, in our case, replace some of those going out moments with having a drink at home. And especially with the, the stresses of being at home, you know, families at home, or if you're on your own, just dealing with the stress in any case of being on your own or just managing a business or some people not knowing where you are with your job or all the different scenarios people went through not having a job. Um, you know, we had to try and understand that. But, you know, there were certain moments which became at-home drinking moments, that transition from sort of the day into the evening. Um, and then we realized what people wanted to drink was what was hot, which in our industry is tequila. The, the whole sense of business is booming. So that got hotter. Um, North American whiskey is flying. So we just needed to make sure we had the right brands on offer. And then um, digital and e-commerce was exploding. Uh, I think there was about, we went back to this time last year, only about 20% of people knew that they could buy um, specific spirits or alcohol online. Uh, by pretty much June, July this year, last year, nearly half of the people had bought spirits online and, and alcohol online. So a transformational shift. Um, because people thought, oh, there's regulations around the industry, and actually, people get used to their behaviours. That's how it is. People get used to going to the liquor store or going to a grocery store if you're in a state where you can buy in a grocery store. That's kind of what you do. So people get very ingrained in their behaviour. And then when suddenly, when the whole world has a massive disruption, we all have to shift and change our behaviours. And that's what people did. Um, so we just needed to make sure that we were very present online. That we were going to, we had our, we were ramping up our, you know, e-commerce capabilities. Uh, we were strong in store. We had the right programs for our brands. And in Candley, we dialed up our investment. We knew that we had to reach people and that people were out there buying and they were buying drinks brands. So we needed to make sure we targeted them effectively. And that meant reaching people in their homes with very effective media. So, so we, we pivoted pretty quickly. We got a feel for what people were doing. We made sure we had the right product mix. We made sure we worked. We delivered our messages and our brands in the right way. We got into people's homes. We did. We supported bartenders. But yeah, it was a, it was a big shift, actually, in terms of how we operate. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Um, it, very interesting to hear how Diageo has managed to pivot over the past 12 months. Um, but just double-clicking a little bit more on your own personal leadership um, experience over the past year, what have you had to do differently? How have you had to flex your leadership skills in order to find success in this environment? Yeah, quite a lot. I think um, what was realising... I needed to bring leadership around, um, just thought, first thing is being very averse on thought leadership around how we lead through a time of crisis uh, and how, you know, people in the world respond to crises and what's happened. And then we, so I set out some principles about, so for the business about how we should operate. So saying that there were probably going to be one, 
three phases and lots of business talked about this kind of the, the now the next and the beyond phase and we needed to look at each phase differently and make sure we had the basically the right plans in place for each of those phases and then also looking about how we made our brands relevant so i set out some principles very early uh around what we called comfort utility and service making sure that our brands had um were all the, the the communication around them was sort of was comforting and reassuring but not depressing utility it was really easy to buy our brands and service was about helping communities and all we did so we set very literally within three or four weeks very clear principles which we communicate across the business and to all my teams about how we operated and each of our brands would look at that so i set up i suppose you set a vision and set some principles and then there was a piece about getting a clear agenda and making sure with my leadership team and then working across the whole organization so on the brand with my leadership making sure we're very clear about you know the brand prioritization and then very much working as part of the north american executive team and into my boss and team that we were clear on our priorities we were clear on the money we had to invest as so i worked with a cfo and we worked into our global business and you know putting a case forward for investing behind our brands so very overtly making sure we were leading understanding what was going on and then candidly keeping the team motivated and pumped you know at a time where i knew it's hard you know everyone was in different places so overly communicating you know i think a lot of businesses did it making sure my leadership team were we were constantly connecting so over almost overly communicating on zoom making sure we had a very clear agenda likewise on the north american executive team we were very you know very connected and then making sure my broader team as well that we spend time communicating we get people together recognize what people are going through and then just you know and then there was a lot of work as well because we're a social industry i think those early months i think people were exhausted after a while but we over indexed probably on sort of group social events and zoom cocktails and bringing interesting people in just trying to make sure that there was a lot going on to keep people active and busy and motivated recognizing that you know it was difficult for a lot of people so um so connection really driving a lot of connection was really really important and keeping a dialogue going and then setting real clear really clear sort of parameters and a real sort of clear vision about what we needed to do was really really critical All right, thank you very much Ed for um being open and sharing your story with us today. It was a real pleasure to speak with you again. Um have a great day and I look forward to seeing what the future holds for you. Cheers guys, I appreciate it. Thank you.